We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today for the second time is Gwen Wong. She's a political scientist at the University of Warwick. And I'm saying it right today, so I uh, can be proud of myself already today. Uh, welcome to you, Gwen. Thank you, Keith. It's good to be here again. Good evening. Good to have you. And also joining us by Skype today, we have Che Ting Ye of Ketagalan Media, a frequent contributor to the show. Ting, good to have you as well. Thanks, and good evening, everybody. So uh, we have so many stories to get through today. Uh, a very quick rundown of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, of course, there's the U.S. Naval officer who's caught up in an espionage case. Uh, and that case has also got Taiwan tangled up in it as well. There's a new DPP cross-strait oversight bill that's being met with a fair amount of criticism from folks the DPP were probably hoping would be on their side. And a bit of news that surprised me, folks hit the street to protest electricity prices. Their appeal? Don't give us a price cut. We'll be explaining why they want to keep prices where they are. Uh, But first, we have got to lead with the story of the week, an uncivilized act of extrajudicial abduction. That's what Taiwan's government officials are calling the transfer of 45 Taiwanese nationals involved in a telefraud case from Kenya to China. Uh, And those transfers were quite dramatic. Uh, Apparently, Kenyan police resorted to tear gas uh, and wagging around submachine guns to convince uh, 37 Taiwanese to board an airplane bound for China. Uh, So quite a dramatic scene there that took place earlier this week. Uh, And on the surface, uh, the dispute really isn't too hard to understand. Taiwan is saying these are our nationals. They should be extradited to our country and subjected to our legal proceedings. Uh, China, though, is saying, you know, most of the victims of the telephone fraud were, in fact, Chinese. uh, So we've got jurisdiction. And by the way, this is a big crime. uh, And we're definitely not giving it to you because, well, we don't really trust you to punish these guys properly. We don't want to see more of these cases in the future. Been seeing too much already. So, you know, both sides kind of easy to see where they're coming from. But uh, things really get complicated once we get into the heart of the matter. And that heart of the matter being uh, this question of jurisdiction. Uh, Because then we run into all kinds of complicated international agreements, law, Uh, I hesitate to use the word, but jurisprudence maybe even. Uh, And so this is obviously way over my pay grade, uh, perhaps even over the pay grade of uh, Ting and Gwen, uh, although I'm sure they may chime in as well. Uh, So as always, when we run into uh, issues of this nature, uh, we are very happy to be able to call on frequent contributor Ross Feingold of DC International, uh, who also happens to uh, be a lawyer. Is that right? That's right. That's okay. So I got my story straight on that one. Uh, well, uh, the the question here is uh, that the Ministry of Justice, even Taiwan's own Ministry of Justice, uh, has said that China has jurisdiction in this case. Now, a lot of other people in Taiwan are very angry uh, at that statement, and I think that uh, the ministry has kind of backed off that claim a little bit. Uh, but you know, if even Taiwan's own Ministry of Justice is saying that, then this is clearly a very murky question. Uh, how are our listeners to approach this and try to understand what's going on here? Well, the typical lawyer answer is, is to say it depends, um, <laughs> and then, and then uh, give a few different angles. Uh, the initial 
response from the Ministry of Justice was probably the technically correct answer. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of talk here about international agreements and China violating international agreements. That, that, that's really questionable. Uh, so uh, people have rushed to politicize this issue, but, but the fact remains that uh, the crimes did occur in, in China. These people arguably used false, at least some of them it appears, used false Chinese documents falsified Chinese passports to enter uh, Kenya, or, or they uh, obtained their Kenyan visas in China. They took planes that originated in China uh, to fly over to Kenya. So, so Taiwan's claim on, on these people uh, for prosecution, if Taiwan is even serious about prosec prosecuting them, uh, is very weak. Uh, and China's claim is certainly a lot stronger, but, but of course, politically, uh, it, it's uh, who's the government to say that it, it, it's wrong and, and that the Taiwanese national shouldn't be sent to China. But uh, as far as agreements and, and either the bilateral agreements, there's also been a lot of talk about this, uh, people saying that the, the Mainland Affairs Council, for example, hasn't had access to the Taiwanese. There, there is no agreement that gives the Mainland Affairs Council or, or the Taiwanese government access to Taiwanese nationals who are held in detention in China, the earlier agreements uh, allow family members potentially to visit. Maybe the wording of the agreement there is, is somewhat uh, unclear as well. But, but the Taiwanese government certainly, as of now, under the current agreements, doesn't have access to visit these uh, Taiwanese nationals who are detained in China. Mm. Well, uh, I think uh, one of the main agreements that we're talking about here uh, would be the uh, Cross-Strait Joint Crime Fighting and Judicial Mutual Assistance Agreement. Uh, kind of a long one uh, to spit out right there. Uh, but, I mean, it's kind of been used before. I mean, just based on the reading that I've done, uh, there was a 2011 case in the Philippines in which uh, 14 Taiwan Taiwanese suspects, uh, well, Taiwan, they were going to be sent to China, but Taiwan uh, managed to get them back into uh, Taiwan. So, I mean, isn't there a little bit of precedent here? Uh, isn't, to some extent, this uh, breaking with uh, how these cases have been dealt with in the past? President, as far as being a political decision at the at the time and about how how to dispose of individual cases, but but China is not bound by by any of the current agreements to to have given up its claim to prosecute these individuals if in fact they committed a crime under Chinese law. Mm. Right. So uh, a lot of moving parts there for us to be thinking about. But uh, let's uh, not heed Ross's advice at all. And uh, let's politicize this thing uh, and see if there is any kind of a political angle here. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, uh, to some extent, whether wh whatever the laws may be, there is uh, some breaking with legal precedent here. Uh, and, and certainly uh, China could be more amenable to allowing over Taiwanese officials uh, to consult on these matters. Uh, and so it raises the question, uh, is China dealing with it in this particular way uh, because of the particular person that's about to be inaugurated? Uh, Ting, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, politically, you know, this is definitely a uh, a story that's pretty much hijacked the airwaves and the, um, the newspapers in Taiwan these days, right? And I think um, for the people in Taiwan, um, anytime you have questions of, recognition of nationality, of um, sovereignty, you know, that's, that's always a very sensitive nerve for the people in Taiwan, right? And so here you have a, um, you know, China of all cases, right, going to 
take, um, you know, forcefully take people from uh, in, in Kenya with, you know, and you have these imageries of, you know, guns and tear gas, you know, and, and then pictures of them being hooded and taken to China, I think it just touched all sorts of, uh, you know, crazy nerves in Taiwan, right? So you can imagine, uh, you know, all the controversy and all the, you know, why the entire society in Taiwan is very upset over this. And I feel like, you know, all the legal arguments, you know, clear-headed, cool-headed legal arguments um, cannot, you know, in this case, I, I feel it's very hard to get people to, to think of these, you know, to think of this thing in, you know, in a very calm and cool-headed way. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, one, th- one manifestation of, of uh, this difficulty to think of it in a cool-headed way is people who are now saying all of the foreign policy and cross-strait policies of the outgoing government have been a failure because China uh, is not, does not want to cooperate in this particular situation and is taking a very hard line. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a reasonable analysis to say, take this one incident and say that eight, eight years of uh, foreign policy accomplishments, whether it's uh, participation in international organizations, the various agreements signed with China on, on a whole range of issues, are, are a complete failure. You know, it's, like, it's like saying, uh, you know, well, we should just give up on cross-strait trade and flights and, and, and not participate in international organizations under any circumstance because of this incident and, and start from zero. I, I, I don't think that's a, a reasonable analysis. Well, I think that's a good point that Rogers mentioned that maybe it's not necessary to scrap all the achievement and um, mutual trust that has been built between the two sides during the past eight years. But at the same time, I think it's important to see if the so-called cross-trade agreement on joint crime finding um, is working effectively because it's important to see from this case, especially if uh, the two sides, especially on mainland side, that are they following the agreement closely and accordingly? So if we look at the um, parliament um, discussion, we, we would see a lot of time that the DVP and MPP legislators, they often criticize and argue that the Ministry of uh, Justice, they intentionally defend China's jurisdiction by saying that, well, those Taiwanese, they did commit crime overseas. So on that regard, um, China does claim jurisdiction. How they were kind of caught in the position of defending China, or at right. least being seen as defending China exactly. this week. But that's another way of saying that Taiwanese law is not perfect. Mm-hmm. As a Ministry of Justice, what kind of position are you holding? Are mm-hmm. you defending that because China's law is more complete in terms of um, punishing fraud criminals, so we should send people over there for trials? Or maybe there's another way that Taiwan and China can do better together. Mm. So I think this case is really interesting because, one, it triggered Taiwanese people's fear and worry that, well, in the future, what if we commit crime in a third country? Can China claim jurisdiction, especially when Taiwan is a democracy and China isn't? Mm. So Taiwanese people's worry and fear reflect the weak mutual trust between Taiwanese people and the government. They do not think that the outgoing government is capable or is doing um, a good job in defending their rights when the citizen is having trouble overseas. At mm. the same time, it also reflects Taiwanese people's uh, lack of trust in 
the China government. But Gwen, but Gwen, is that reasonable? I mean, look at the facts of this particular situation. Again, the the, the crimes have occurred in China. It's not a question of Taiwanese people being subject potentially to the laws of China whenever Taiwanese people are outside of Taiwan. We have to look at the, the facts in this situation. Again, they may have flown from China to, to Kenya, so typically when, when a country expels you, they will expel you back to the point where you originated from, uh, regardless of your nationality. So if they flew from China, that was their port of embarkation. They're going to be sent back to China. That, that is not surprising. They may have used forged Chinese documents to enter Kenya, not forged Taiwanese documents. And the victims of the crimes, uh, they, they, we all know that for a fact, right? They, they, they were sit, sitting in Kenya and calling people in China and, and engaging in fraudulent activities. Uh, so to, to, for people to say that uh, we should now fear that we're going to be subject to Chinese jurisdiction wherever we go, uh, that that's not realistic, and it's inconsistent with the facts of this particular situation. Uh, all right, well, we got to uh, wrap up this segment, but I think we'll just throw it to Ting to give us some closing thoughts here. So I think there's a couple of, um, just within, if we focus on Taiwan, right, there's a couple of layers, right? One is, um, you know, kind of the question that we're talking about, whether or not Taiwanese citizens traveling abroad or committing crimes abroad, right, and, you know, whether or not they were um, deported or extradited with the, you know, in the right or in the proper, um, you know, with the proper channels and the proper methods. I think the other layer that we're talking about is the, um, the Taiwanese society's reactions towards its government's attitude and all this, right? So, um, for me, at least if I were in a government, you know, even... I, However weak of a claim I have, right, I would at least, you know, be able, I would at least say, okay, we're going to do our best to get these people back, um, you know, or at the very least say, okay, um, the facts of these kids are very particular, right, and to really, you know, harp on those things and say, you know, there is no danger, you know, the government will still do everything we can to protect you, right? And so I feel like, um, you know, whether you say, you know, the current government has been so battered and so cast in this light of being very China-friendly that, you know, this is just another one, this is just another instance to add to their very long list of, you know, um, offenses. Or um, you're saying, well, you know, the government, you know, is, you know, just didn't do a very good job of, um, explaining things to the people cool-headedly, right? All right. So, yeah, certainly uh, it seems like the question of confidence in your government and confidence in uh, their ability to deal uh, with these sorts of international relations uh, kind of lies uh, at the heart of the outcry this week and at the heart of uh, why this became such a large upset. Uh so uh, we are going to leave that story there for today, though. Uh, and before we get to the other really big story of this week, we actually have something that's kind of late-breaking. And I really want to get Ross's uh, take on this before I let him go. Uh, that story, of course, is the Far Glory deal is gone. 
Uh, of course, Far Glory, uh, the conglomerate, and Taipei City have been sparring back and forth for about a year now over uh, the fate of the Taipei Dome, which Far Glory was commissioned to build, uh, but uh, Taipei City, under the auspices of the new, at the time, new Kowenja administration, uh, threw some doubt into uh, the legal tender for the contract. Uh, some questions as to uh, whether or not there was some shady dealings uh, in how that contract got signed, got given to the Far Glory uh, conglomerate. And, uh, well, the that whole spat kind of resulted in uh, a breakdown of negotiations and further a breakdown of the construction itself. So that whole construction site has been kind of sitting there dormant for, uh, again, almost a year now. It seems like forever. We thought they might be able to patch things up. We thought they might be able to figure things out and uh, move on. Uh, but no, we just found out yesterday that the contract is off, the deal is off, uh, and thus the fate of the Taipei Dome itself is in some amount of question. Uh, so I got two quick questions for you, Ross, um, hoping just for your quick take before I let you go. First, uh, how did we get here? How did Taipei City get to this point where the deal has become totally untenable and it's just easier to move on? Well, what, what, what seemed to spark a lot of the controversy when Ko Wenjo's administration took over the city government at, at the end of 2014 was how Far Glory was using the space within the plot of land and how much of the plot of land was allocated to the stadium or the arena itself and how much was to be used for other parts of the development, such as commercial use, where, where Far Glory would, would actually make most of its money. Uh, and, and there seemed to be a dispute over what was permissible and, and how much of the space Far Glory was allocating for a shopping mall and, and other commercial uses beyond the footprint of the arena itself. Uh, and this led to a lot of back and forth, and uh, the city government found a, a very easy tool to all construction, which was to say that uh, various aspects of the construction were in violation of all sorts of applicable uh, codes. So code violations with regard to building materials, with regard to the footprint of of the dome, with with regard to the impact on neighboring streets, impact on the MRT line, which runs under Zhongxiao East Road right in front of the arena, etc. So this brought construction to a halt. And they've been arguing back and forth since. Mm. And so uh, apparently the negotiations didn't really take off, didn't go anywhere. Uh, Far Glory is out. So second question I want to put to you real quick before I let you go. Uh, Where do we go from here? Is this thing likely to be uh, completed? Are we going to find another contractor to uh, finish the construction here? Or is that it for the Taipei Dome? Uh, One place we're going to go from here is probably going to be the court because uh, there'll there'll be litigation. Unless Taipei City is willing to write a, a big check to the Far Glory group to go away, the Far Glory group is, is going to sue for, for a lot of money, uh, for what they've invested, for lost profits, etc. Uh, well, I'll even throw your question right back at you. I mean, where's the appetite among the people of Taipei City, who are ultimately probably going to foot part of the bill here as the taxpayers, uh, to destroy something that's uh, substantially complete? Uh, so there seems to be a lack of logic there, unless unless the the city government could really establish that this is what what the public wants. Uh, so the city government will either have to finish the project itself, or they're going to have to bring in another uh, large uh, company that that is capable of finishing it. And, and then the important thing also is is to operate it after it's finished. Uh, and it would be very difficult to get another company to 
step in at this point, um, but but it's possible. Well, uh, at any rate, the drama continues, and we will continue to follow it. This is really uh, this was our bread and butter when we started the show about a year ago. Uh, so it's nice that we get to talk about the good old Taipei Dome once again. Uh, but with that, I'm going to let you go. We were speaking right there to Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Uh, he helps us out with uh, lots of stuff on the show, especially when we run into trouble with legal questions. Ross, thanks so much for joining us today. Good night. All right. And uh, last up in the first half, uh, there is a high-profile espionage case unfolding in the U.S. It does involve a U.S. naval officer of Taiwanese descent. In fact, he was born here. Uh, And also some top-secret information allegedly passed into the wrong hands. So uh, what does this have to do with Taiwan? Well, uh, other than the descent angle of this whole thing, uh, the big question here, it turns out, is... Were those Taiwanese hands that that information was passed to? Apparently, Lieutenant Commander Edward Lin, as he's called, was arrested eight months ago. Uh, But news about the case just broke this week, uh, along with news that U.S. investigators are looking into whether Lin passed classified information to China and Taiwan. Both of those are possibilities here. Uh, So right now, I mean, at this point, we don't really know too much. Uh, Investigators are being tight-lipped. We do know that they believe... Uh, that he may have given secret information to his Chinese girlfriend. He's also accused of visiting a prostitute, uh, infidelity, not disclosing foreign travel, and lying to investigators. So uh, whatever the story is, it's bound to be pretty interesting if we uh, do get to figure it out one day. Uh, but, you know, we we really, there's just more question marks than answers at this point. Taiwan's military is, of course, denying any involvement or even knowledge of the case. Um, so for now, we're kind of just left to speculate. Uh, but clearly, if there is anything to it, if investigators do turn anything up that points towards Taiwanese involvement, uh, that would be a sticky wicket for the incoming Thai administration. Uh, would it not, Gwen? Yes, I think the news came out at a very bad timing because mm. the outgoing government is under a lot of pressure in many cases, including the recent Kenya one. And also, I think the news headlines are not helping Ma because news suggested that the spy could have handed the information to both China and Taiwan, which means that perhaps as some, to some extent, Taiwan and China on the same side mm. against or stealing information from the U.S. military. So I think definitely from um, for the public, for the public, this is not a good PR for the outgoing government at all. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I have seen a couple of uh, speculative things. I mean, it's all very speculative at this point that maybe gets Taiwan out of this jam. Um, so some people speculate that perhaps what's going on here. Uh, is that the Chinese spies were actually posing as Taiwanese agents, so really Taiwan wasn't involved at all. Uh, But definitely, yeah, at least uh, based on what we know now, this could uh, be pretty bad for the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. Uh, Ting, do you see anything else there? Um, Not really on my side. I mean, I think um, there's still a lot of uh, questions that we don't know the answers to. And also just over here, the Taiwanese-American community is... um, I mean, understandably very upset that um, this has sort of happened and um, so everyone is trying to figure out what's going on. So, Yeah, especially given a uh, little fun fact, this week is actually the 37th anniversary of the enactment of the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, so that is, of course, the act that sort of governs U.S.-Taiwan relations in the absence of formal diplomatic ties. So uh, timing, timing is the key word for the show this week. 
but with that, uh, since we've run out of all of our speculation for the first half of this show, uh, and uh, we don't want to get into a deficit on that front, we are going to take a quick break now. When we return, we're going to be looking at a possible growing rift within the DPP itself uh, and a whole bunch of protesting people asking to be charged more money. All that and more when we return. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gwen Wang and Che Ting Ye. Kicking off the second half, uh, we've got two politics stories on very different topics, actually, uh, but both pointing towards possible trouble on the horizon for the DPP's leadership. First up, we're going back to an old standard news story for Taiwan over the past couple of years anyway, that being the Cross-Strait Agreement Supervisory Bill. A uh, bit of a mouthful, so uh, I was kind of happy that we weren't talking about it for a while there, but it's back in the news, so I'm going to have to be practicing my various tongue twisters to make sure I can get through that every time. The reason that it's back in the news is the DPP draft proposal uh, was introduced to the Legislative Yuan this week. Uh, and we might have thought that it would have been welcomed with open arms because, of course, this was one of the key demands of the Sunflower Movement during uh, all of those protests uh, going back to 2014. And uh, the promise that some version of a bill like this uh, from uh, Wang Jinping was uh, something that got the protesters out of the legislative yuan, you know, to begin with. So a very important promise. Uh, but now that the DPP have put their version of the, the bill forward... Uh, it's already facing criticism from a number of activists and uh, the NPP to boot. Um, so let's start, before we get into the criticism, let's just try to help our listeners understand what's in this thing. Uh, Ting, of course, this is something that's aimed at giving the legislature more oversight over cross-strait agreements, um, getting away from what's be called you know, the whole black box mentality of you get the leadership of shrouded in secrecy, working out all these cross-strait deals, not a lot of public oversight. What is in uh, the DPP's formulation? So um, in the DPP's formulation, and these are sort of specifically what, um, you know, are the points of contention, there are sort of, I would say, maybe two baskets. Uh, one is um, how much do people outside the legislature, um, you know, so you're talking about civic groups or you're talking about industry groups, how much um, say they have. And the other basket, um, I would say, is more um, talking about um, kind of the specific nature of uh, the particular case of China, right? So there's um, questions of whether or not the um, the two governments can talk about, uh, can negotiate questions of sovereignty and how are the two, um, kind of how are the two political entities defined in the um, bill. So these are kind of the things that... Um, specifically what uh, people are, you know, have problems with. Right. So uh, let's talk about the problems then. Uh, I mean, this bill that the DVP introduced certainly would give uh, the legislature more say than it currently has. I think currently uh, the deal is that they just get an up-no vote once the deal has already been introduced. Uh, This would give them more of a a consulting role through the process of uh, negotiations. Uh, but uh, the NPP, legislators from the New Power Party, uh, they're saying that they're not happy about this. Uh, tell us why they're dissatisfied. Well, so um, just, you know, so, so we understand, right, so the NPP kind of came to power um, on the, um, from the support that 
they had from the Sunflower Movement, right? So um, people like Bongo Chang, right? He was very prominently featured as one of the um, organizers or one of the um, leaders of the movement. Um, and so if we remember back um, during the movement, one of the biggest demands that they have is to have one of these things. And they actually had a draft bill um, back then. So um, kind of the things that they're not happy about, right? So one is... Um, for example, the um, so China and Taiwan are still defined under um, the framework of the ROC old ROC Constitution and the um, the Act governing relations between the you know between the two sides. That China is considered a um, you know the the mainland district, right? The mainland region of Taiwan, and you know, and and so it still follows. They say it still follows this concept of uh, Taiwan and the mainland being part of one China. Right. Um, they're also not happy that the bill does not forbid or does not have higher um, mechan- sort of a you know stringent high- mechanisms for if the two governments um, negotiate uh, political issues <clears throat> such as um, questions about sovereignty or questions about recognition and diplomatic um, recognition things like that. Um, the other part of tour, as I mentioned um, during the lead up to the Sunflower Movement, people were very upset at the process through which the cross-straits uh, services and trade uh, uh, agreement was, quote-unquote, reviewed in the legislature, right? Because they're saying, well, there are a lot of these so-called hearings, um, but people um, didn't feel like they had the chance to participate, and industry groups weren't consulted on, um, you know, how the agreement would impact them and things like that. So people uh, looked at the DDP's version of the bill says, well, that's not really in there as well. And so um, that's um, that's the thing. And also, I think, finally, what really sparked off the movement uh, two years ago was that the bill basically automatically leaves the committee once um, the sort of review period was over, right? And so I think there's sort of controversy as to whether or not under the DDP's version that can still happen. Right, and so um, this is kind of also going back to the um, the act governing relations between the Taiwan and the mainland uh, regions, um, which basically gives um, the executive kind of this power to say, well, since China is technically not a foreign entity, the rules are different using with that law, and basically they're saying, well, if you don't change that, then, you know, the executive still has leeway to um, kind of go around the legislature and say, well, this is not really a international treaty. Right. Okay. So uh, we're going to leave that topic now, uh, revisit it in just a second, because uh, there's certainly some broader questions uh, politically moving forward in Taiwan. Uh, but we're going to move now to another story. Uh, and I know that this is not everybody's favorite story, but uh, cabinet announcements. We got a whole bunch of them this week. Exciting stuff, new names, new faces uh, to forget immediately. Uh, but, uh, to you know, we got a list of people, and that can always be a little bit dry to get through. But uh, help us out here, Gwen. What, what should we actually take away from this? What should we be paying attention to in this uh, new list that uh, Premier-designate Lin Tran has announced of uh, new cabinet members? Well, from the current announcement, you could see that the incoming Premier Lin Chuan, he has nominated people from both um, the DPP 
and also the central government, which serving the Manchu government mm. right now. So, so kind of a move to the center a little bit, right? And for now, Lin Chen is given the full authority by the president-elect Tsai Ing-wen in terms of what kind of people he would like to work with in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. So I think to some extent, um, it shows that um, the the com- the incoming Tsai government is trying to fulfill her promise that. They are going to have a government that can unify Taiwan from every political um, across the p- political spectrum. Mm. So, which is a good thing because which is mean that hopefully we can see a more professional cabinet in the future. However, such announcement might not satisfy some deep green or DPP members because mm. they might think that we fought so hard during the elections. How come most of the cabinet members are not DPP members? Mm. Say, um, there is one deputy minister of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, he is not a DPP member. He is a, a, a leader in civil groups um, in terms of environmental protection issues. And is he going to cause more trouble in terms of DPP's future um, environmental policies and also energy policies. We don't know. So if those non-DPP cabinet members can't have a unified stance along with other DPP members, say in the parliament, then how is Lin Chen going to resolve the disputes between the two sides? Mm. That would be a big challenge for him. So is maybe the general sentiment in uh, DPP members observing this? Uh, you know why? Why are we getting passed over for this? Why? Why are we not getting our own guys in there so that we can, you know, kind of really move forward a DPP platform? Right, right. Maybe some DPP members will worry that the DPP, the so-called DPP agenda, if there mm-hmm. is one, is not going to fulfill in the future. Mm, interesting. Okay, so we've kind of just uh, identified two different fronts that perhaps the DPP needs to worry about. On the one hand, we've got all these activist groups, the Sunflower Movement. Uh, more politically, we have the New Power Party. Uh, they're voicing dissatisfaction with the DPP this week. Uh, and then on the other front, within their own party, uh, the center of the DPP uh, is kind of facing some dissatisfaction from folks that are saying, hey, we won. It's time for us to really pick up the reins of power and govern the way that, uh, you know, we, the DPP, think should, should, be, should be done. Uh, so, Ting, what is your take there? Does the party really uh, have a problem going forward? Is it going to have uh, as much unity as you would think that a party would have uh, with, you know, the overwhelming majority that it, it, it achieved in the last election? Or is it going to be some more more fractious politics than we were expecting? Um, I kind of lean towards a little bit towards the latter. Um, I mean, I don't know if I used the word fractious just yet, but definitely... Um Vociferous, perhaps. Um, Vociferous. Because, okay, that's a good word too. Yeah, cause, just because I think um, you know the there's there's the worst, there's so much on um, you know discontent with the current Mindjo and KMT um, administration, right? And so I think um, for most of the people, um, their sort of you know very first level goal is okay. Let's just knock them out first, right? Let's just all vote for Tsai Ing-wen. You know, let's just all vote um, for, um, you know, DPP and ally legislators. And, uh, you know, let's put, let's put them in power first. And then let's discuss any differences that we may have amongst ourselves. That's right. I mean, that's kind of what it all boils down to is the election. A lot of those votes were not votes for tying when they were votes against the KMT and Mindjo. Right. And I almost feel like... Um, you know, Tsai Ing-wen, since uh, during her campaign, I mean, she did put, put out a lot of 
um, you know, policy directives and policy um, papers, but I feel like not many people really paid attention to them. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, and of course, you know, it's one thing to say uh, your campaign promises, right? It's one thing, it's another thing to say, okay, now we're actually going to try to make them happen, right? right? And, you know, I've said in the past that I think there are going to be people who are disappointed mm. at the DPP um, because they, you know, they kind of... They didn't read the fine print. Um, well, they kind of assume that the DPP is going to be, you know, everything that the KMT is not, mm. right? Um, but I, um, you know, more realistically, I think there's a lot of things that, um, you know, for better or for worse, the DPP is just as tied as the KMT was um, in, in doing things, right? So, um, you know, and you still have, you know, in, in, in terms of economic, um, just economic policies, right? You have, even within the DPP, you have people who lean a little bit more social welfare, social justice, you have the people who are leaning more, okay, no, let's get the economy going first, let's, um, you know, make Taiwan even more pro-business environment. Um, so I think there's definitely going to be fissure cracks um, within the DPP. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we just saw here was the Sunflower Movement saying, well, we're not happy with the DPP version of um, things either. Okay, they're a little bit better than the KMT. We'll give them that. But they're, you know, still far away from what we'd like to see, right? So I think going forward, um, it's not going to be smooth sailing for the BBP. And also women. Hmm. Remember a few days ago, there are some women groups that openly criticized that Lin Chen so far only nominated two female cabinet members, hmm. which is the, the ratio so far is a lot lower than the Mayanjou administration. Hmm. So I think that's another problem that Lin Chen has to look into in the future. It's another area where, you know, going into the Thai administration, obviously high hopes for uh, women equality. Uh, and so if this is another place where, well, there's a lot of potential for uh, those hopes to be disappointed. Right. Although, speaking of which, there's a good news. Um, Catherine Chan, a, a, a veteran diplomat, she is announced to be the next Mac Mellon Affair Council Minister. Mm-hmm. So then, yes, we have one more female cabinet member. Let's hope to see more coming in, in the future. All right. Well, uh, a lot to ponder on that front, uh, but we are going to move to our last story for the broadcast show today. Uh, And that is the protests earlier this week where the chant went something like, higher prices, higher prices, higher prices. Very odd chant for uh, any kind of protest out there. Uh, Don't expect to hear it. Uh, But, indeed, scores of parents and children gathered in front of the Legislative Yuan building earlier this week uh, to protest against those electricity price cuts that we actually discussed on the show a number of weeks ago. Uh, And their point basically being uh, you keep these prices uh, too low and Taiwan will never get away from burning fossil fuels. It'll never clean up its environmental act. So, uh, Gwen, unpack this a little bit for us. Uh, This is not the kind of protest we've seen before in Taiwan. No, but I'm really happy to see there are people actually having some rational thought about the dire energy problem in Taiwan. Mm. Um, put it this way, in an z- easier way. One of the protesters says, said that, well, yes, the government claimed that the, the cut can save us between 80 or 100 something NT dollars per month, which mm-hmm. is enough to buy one extra 
lunchbox. However, the money we have spent on seeing a doctor、uh, when we are suffering from the bad air quality is more than one hundred something dollars.、Mm. So I think they made a valid point here.、Um, the fo- the current formula for electricity price calculation does not reflect the real cost because it does not include the external cost for air pollution caused by fossil fuel power generation.、Mm. And I think that's something definitely the next government has to fix first,、um, especially if Taiwan. One does walk into the no nuclear power environment as、right. a goal. Then maybe we should consider what's fair and what's the best policy that can encourage people on、um, saving more energy, saving more electricity, so then Taiwan could have more space to welcome the green energy, which is not fully developed in Taiwan so far. Right.、Yeah. Right. Not by a long shot.、Uh, and so. You, do you think that this is going to be a broader movement, though? I mean, because、uh, I think we've we've seen in the past,、uh, Mind Joe himself, he took huge hits when he raised similar utility prices,、uh, uh, and that was that was a huge issue in his administration. So, is this a fringe point of view that we should be raising prices on our own people right now,、uh, or, or or do you think that the、uh, concern about environmental issues is so great in Taiwan now that? Uh, there would be a majority of people that would be willing to say, "Yeah, we're willing to take higher prices、uh, if that means moving Taiwan towards、uh, more efficient, more green sources of energy." I think it's too early to tell that there would be a majority of Taiwanese people supporting raising the electricity prices again. However, I do see that the public discourse on this issue is 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 taking a more meaningful approach. That people are not just talking about how much money we could save, but also talking about. What's the best policy that can help our environment?、Mm. All right, so nice little、uh, shift in public discourse.、Uh, Gwen applauds it. I、uh, well, I'll, okay, I'll say it. I'll, I applaud it too.、Uh, <laughs> Would kind you of support nice... it? Would you be happy to pay a bit more so that we can save the earth? It's fixed at my place. I pay.、Uh, I pay five NT per due. So、okay. uh, <laughs> I don't think it's going to change anything for me. M- my landlord might like it. Who knows? <laughs> Anyway,、uh, but we are gonna move to our final story for today. And、uh, for once, it's not me. It's not Gavin who's giving the silly bit of news at the end,、uh, as we always like to bring to our podcast listeners. Of course,、uh, the bonus silly little bit at the end.、Uh, instead, the guy bringing it to us is Ting.、Uh, Ting, what do you have for us? So,、um, as we all know, conscription is still a thing in Taiwan. But in recent years, you have、um, the option of doing.、Um, You know what's sort of colloquially known as a substitute、um, military service, where you work for、um, you know sort of a serve some sort of a public good as a volunteer. So、um, I've known people to work as a you know volunteer firefighter, or in the police force, or as a、um, teacher in a rural area. And now、um, there seems to be a military service that you can you can fulfill at the Ministry of Culture now.、Um, I'm not exactly sure what kind of、um, you know work that they're requiring these、uh, you know social freshmen or these you know college recent college grads to、uh, to do at the cultural、uh, ministry, but、um, the requirements for applying to these positions、um, sort of made the news, and some of the requirements, including、um, you know you have to have won、um, you know the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, sorry, the Nobel Prize in literature. Um, you know, or you know, at the very least, you you know, you should have had a Pulitzer, right? Because you know, if you haven't had one, I don't know how, you know, quote unquote culture you are.、Um, you know, and there are all these other、um, sort of a list of awards and accolades that、um, you're supposed to have had, 
in order to apply as a prerequisite to apply to this position. Um, you know, and except they're all just very, you know, very prestigious national awards from either New Zealand or um, the United States. Uh, you know, and it just seems a little ridiculous, right? Because, um, I mean... So wait, wait, just let me get this straight. I just want to make sure I understand this story. So there is a new way to fulfill your uh, compulsory military service. You can do it for through the Ministry of Culture. Uh, but in order to do that, you need to have a Nobel Prize in literature. That's the gist of it, yes. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> That's pretty insane. Actually, didn't you, you sent me the list. Weren't, weren't some of the prizes that... Uh, some of the prizes that could get you into this sweet Ministry of Culture gig, uh, only awards that women could win? There are some only uh, um, awards to uh, women, um, sort of as a women's in literature uh, prizes. Um, and, uh, you know, there are also these um, national literature prizes, right? So we're talking about the um, the uh, Atukagawa um, you know, Yunosuke, right, which is the um, Japanese equivalent of, um, you know, their Nobel Literature Prize, right? So... So if, you're, um, so if you're a dude looking, you know, I mean, it's only guys that have to fulfill this requirement, so that doesn't really help you too much, does it? No, that, I mean, it's just, um, also, it's just, you know, these awards are given to, like, one person per year, right? Or, you know, one person per, you know, season that they have, right? So it's, um, I mean, basically, it, and uh, among all these awards, you know, the national awards are obviously not awarded to nationals, you know, Taiwanese nationals or anything like that, right? So... Yeah, it just uh, seems to almost to me as a um, way to say, okay, we're really not taking anybody. That's kind of how I feel about this list. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Yes, you can have this job, but you need to be able to juggle flaming desks while on a pogo stick uh, on a tightrope over the Grand Canyon. And if you can't do that, you can't have the job. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, so I'm assuming you wouldn't qualify for any of these posting, unfortunately. Uh, no, and um, I almost wanted to say uh, Haruki Murakami wouldn't, um, you know. <laughs> uh, I almost wanted to say he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't be able to get a job either because he's the sort of perennial favorite to win the Nobel Literature Prize, and he never gets it, right? <sighs> well, maybe, maybe that's another way that Taiwan government is encouraging people to become a writer. There you go. You can all you got to do is win the Nobel Prize. But right. while you're still pretty young, though, because most people do this when they're pretty young. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm sure they will find one guy out there. I'm sure there is one uh, budding Nobel laureate that will uh, make it over the line, get this job. We'll wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. But we will have to end the entire show right there. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. And uh, we've just started posting to our blog as well. You can find it there. Please do leave a comment. We would love to hear what you think about these stories. Uh, signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Che Ting Ye of Ketagalan Media. Ting, thanks for joining us. Thanks, and good evening, everybody. And with me in studio uh, for the second appearance, we have Gwen Wong. Thank you as well. Thank you, kids. Good evening. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.